All right, Exodus 31. Exodus 31, beginning in verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all kinds of craftsmanship, to make artistic designs for work in gold and silver and in bronze, and in the cutting of stones for settings, and in the carving of wood, that he may work in all kinds of craftsmanship. Monday morning, Cheryl and I went out for a walk. She finally got me out of the house. It's not easy for her to do that. I'm not a big morning guy, okay? I like to wake up, have my cup of tea, and slowly kind of ease into the day. Cheryl likes to get up and hit it. Let's go for a walk. Let's change the world. Let's do something. You know, and I'm like, can I just watch Fox News for like 10 minutes, you know? But Monday morning she talked me out of it. She got me out of the house, and we started for a walk. We went down Quinn Drive, and we crossed Cornette Bay, and we went into Deception Pass State Park. And we began following this path that kind of weaved around and ultimately went underneath the, the highway and across to the other side. And it was absolutely stunning. But there was something amazing that happened as we were talking and walking and enjoying just the beauty of, of nature around us. A couple of things caught our attention. And it's not the things that you might normally think. It wasn't the towering firs and cedars and hemlocks. It wasn't the sprawling ocean out in front of us. It wasn't the absolute mammoth, gigungus size of all these things around us. Gigungus is a word. Look it up. It wasn't all of this. It was a couple of tiny little things that totally caught me off guard. And Cheryl said at one point, we were walking along, she said, look at this. And she bent down and she picked up a tiny little flower, a weed, really. They were just growing right there on the side of the path. And this weed had a, a white flower on it and every single one of these tiny petals, maybe, maybe at three or four centimeters in length, I mean, tiny little petals. And as you looked at the petals, some of them were kind of randomly, as if done by an artist, as if, were tipped in purple. Tiny little white flower with little purple tips, and then this little, little yellow stalk coming right up in the middle of it. So small, you just as soon step on it as take a look at it. And I was just like, what person would take the time in creating all that he created to spend hours on something like this? A tiny flower that most people will never even see. Well, we continued on a little further. Now my eyes are a little more in tune. I'm not just looking at the big, but I'm looking for the little things. And we came upon another little weed that had a yellow flower on it. And it was in the shape of a, of a tiny cup. There were maybe four, four um, petals on it, but they were all kind of coming up, and it looked cup-shaped. And as you look in the middle of it, it was, it was amazing. Cheryl said, hold this up to the sun, and I held it up, and, and it was translucent, the sun coming through it. But as you look close, it looked like it was blown glass. It looked like someone had gone inside of it and shellacked the hole inside of it. It was shiny and brilliant and yellow, and it was that big. And I thought, how amazing that our God finds insignificant little things and makes them incredibly significant. And oftentimes we miss the significance in the insignificant. And tonight's chapter is one of those times where we could easily just read through it and miss how significant... This person, this guy named Bezalel, truly is. 
Because we've been studying the tabernacle, we've been looking at all its, its furniture and its furnishings, we've been looking at how it's been made and constructed and put together, and then we kind of transferred over to looking at the priesthood that would function inside the tabernacle, all grand, all brilliant, all stunning, all mammoth, like the trees in, in the park, just incredible, or like the birds trying to distract us right now. <laughs> And yet, we come to chapter 31, and suddenly it's almost like it doesn't fit. This is at the very tail end. In fact, at the end of chapter 31 tonight, God has finished giving Moses the law on the mountain. He's through, and Moses is going to go back down the mountain and see how well the people have been doing without him for the last 40 days. Not good, but that's another story for another time. But in Exodus 31, we leave the holy, or so it seems, to deal with the common. We leave the priestly ministry to deal with... The practical, to deal with something that seems kind of commonplace. And we discover in chapter 31, or I hope you will see, great significance in something that might seem insignificant. This is important for us tonight to understand, and I think important for the vast majority of us, because most of us, when it comes to our Christian lives, when it comes to serving the Lord, most of us will probably, most likely, play what we would consider to be insignificant roles in the church. The vast majority of Christians are not going to pastor a church, or be an elder, or be a prophet, or be a missionary. The vast majority of Christians are just going to be kind of part of the body, and most of us in that position kind of think of ourselves as expendable, insignificant, Completely missing that every aspect of the body is as valuable as the next. That because I get the opportunity of standing up and teaching makes no difference in the Father's eyes between myself and someone else. That there is no such thing among people of God as, as insignificance. As a matter of fact, what we would consider the most insignificant, God raises up in tremendous significance like those little flowers. God tips the petals. God changes things. God works in such amazing, significant ways that we will not see, I don't believe, this side of eternity. But there are going to be some stories to tell in heaven. There are going to be some amazing things that we will see and understand and realize that people right around us were doing our whole lives and we never saw it. But we're going to get there and when it's all opened up before us, we'll say, wow. She was amazing. Wow, that church would have fallen apart if not for his ministry. Insignificance in the significance. Well, if you're taking notes, what we're going to deal with tonight in chapter 31 in this, in this very common, practical way, he's going to talk about these guys who are going to build the tabernacle, picking out some people. And we're going to move from priestly ministry to practical ministry. And again, I think this is more applicable for most of us than anything that we've studied in the past several weeks because it's dealing with the everyday, daily ministry life of a Christian. Of someone who's just walking the walk. Of someone who is just trying to figure out, Lord, what am I supposed to do for you? How am I to live my life for you? And so I want to give you tonight, as we walk through this, four keys to practical ministry. Not priestly ministry, not something esoteric or something out there that, that other people do, but practical ministry. Things that you will do, can do, will experience, and what the Lord is inviting you to as a Christian. Again, not talking about out of reach, high and holy ministry, but roll up your sleeves, common, practical ministry.
Stuff that happens all around us that we may not even realize. Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verse 43, Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And we think, oh, that's nice. That's nice. Thank you, Lord, for, for at least pointing out that the people who take out the trash are important too. But I really want to do something big with my life. And Jesus goes on and says, Well, whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So four keys to practical ministry. Key number one, if you want to jot this down, it's all about Bezalel. Bezalel received a considerable calling. And every person who enters into the Christian life, a life of very practical ministry, receives a considerable calling. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I called him. I called him by name. I have picked him out. Out of 600,000 men of Israel, God called Bezalel for a very common but extremely important and significant task. Everyone's heard of Aaron, by the way. You know, if, if anyone spent any time in church or went to Sunday school or whatever, you've heard the name Aaron. Oh, Aaron, he's... Let's see, who played him in the Ten Commandments? I don't remember, but he was the one who was Aaron, who, Moses' brother, right? Aaron, yeah, the mouthpiece. We've all heard of Aaron, and Aaron is now the high priest of Israel, or about to be. But who's heard of Bezalel? Let me just see a show of hands. How many of you have ever heard the name Bezalel before tonight? I've got about four or five people who have been in this chapter. Because if you haven't been in this chapter, you haven't heard the name Bezalel. He's not a name that's counted as the example for ministry. And yet in his life and in this short story, he is a prime example of practical ministry. Bezalel, he's like the little flowers on Cheryl's and my walks. In comparison to the high priestly ministry of Aaron, he seems somewhat insignificant. But you know what? Aaron should not have done his job if not for Bezalel. If God hadn't called Bezalel, Aaron would have nowhere to minister. There would be no tabernacle for him to be in. And so Bezalel was called by name. And he wasn't called to be a prophet. He wasn't called to be a priest or a king. He was called to be a carpenter, a craftsman, a woodworker. That was his role. But his name is stamped in the pages of biblical history because God called him. And I want you to ask yourself this question. See if you understand this, if you know this. Did God call you by name? Did he call you by name? Do you realize that God called you by name? If you have, and I think most of you have, if you have given your life to Jesus Christ, did you know that God picked you out and called you by name? That he said, David, I want you. David, I need you to be involved. You're part of this plan. Cheryl, you're in this. Corey, I have called you. Did you know that God called you by name? The reality, and let me remind you in case you've forgotten, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him to me. You couldn't even approach Jesus if he didn't want you to. You couldn't even come to Jesus unless God had called you, drawn you toward him. John 6.44 no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. As Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9, a verse we've read over and over, but listen to it again. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you 
out of darkness and into his marvelous light. A considerable calling. Our Christian walk is not made up by a series of random decisions. Oh, I remember I decided in Christ on this particular day. And then I decided to go do this ministry on this particular day. And then I decided to do this. And I decided to work harder at my marriage. And I decided to study the Bible more. And I decided to show up at church. Your life is not made up of that as you walk in Christ. You have been called for a purpose. An incredible purpose. And Paul says, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1, I implore you therefore to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. This is one of those tough verses. Because if I really sit and start thinking about my life, I think, am I worthy of the calling? Of the considerable calling of Christ? And look at me, what have I ever done? Uh, Who am I that God would call me? Am I worthy of this calling? How do I do that? How do I live a life that's worthy of being called by God? And the answer is very simple. You start by remembering your calling. You don't forget that you have been called. It's far too easy to forget about the calling, yet it's critical to living an effective life of ministry for the Lord. And it took me years, years to accept my calling in Christ. I'm a teaching pastor. It's, it's what I do. It's what God has shaped me for. It's what He's given me to do. It's what He has called me to. And I shunned it for years and years of my ministry life. For years of being a youth pastor, people would say, You ought to spend more time teaching. And maybe less time on some of these other things. And I'd say, Ah, teaching. I'll let someone else do the teaching. I want to be the fun. I want to be the visionary. That's what I want to be. I want to be the prophet. And God says, Rick, I just want you to teach. And I'd say, no, you don't just want me to teach. I'll never forget, I was at a retreat. The church I worked at in California, and all the pastors were sitting around. It was a rather large staff, and we were talking about spiritual gifts. And what each other's spiritual gifts were. And, and to figure it out, we started by saying, we're going to go around the circle, and we're going to have each one of us tell you what your gift is. So we'll pick one person, and we'll all say, this is what we think. This is what we see. And so I sat there waiting for it to come to me, and I knew they'd come up with you know, something really impressive about my spiritual gifts. And to a person, everyone on the staff said, I think it's teaching. And I was like, <laughs> teaching? Are you serious? And I, I, I didn't want to hear it. That's not what I wanted my gift to be. Because there were so many other things that I thought were more exciting or more thrilling, more wonderful than, you know, being in a barn on a Wednesday night just teaching the Bible. I mean, big deal. Pastors do that all the time. I want to be one of the guys doing other things. But finally God got a hold of me. And honestly, I remember, I remember specifically the night that God said, you are to be a teaching pastor. That's what I want you to do. And the moment I finally accepted that as my calling, it changed everything about how I looked at church and people and life. And, and I mean, I remember going to friends and family and saying, I know what my calling is. And they'd all go, duh. They'd say, no, you don't get it. Now that I know, I have something to walk in and it hasn't changed. Man, I, I get excited when I read Paul saying to Timothy, preach the word. I go, that's for me. When I read in, in the list of, you know, some have been given, you've been given apostles and, and you've been given pastors and you've been given, and goes down and then teachers, I go, oh, that's me. I know my calling. And I cling to that calling. And we are all called, all of us, to ministry in Christ. Now that can be frustrating. I was 38 years old when I finally accepted it. 
And for years I was frustrated as a Christian. Frustrated because I didn't know what my calling was, what my ministry was. And even now, as, as I speak to you, I have a feeling that some of you are sitting here going, I have a calling, but what is it? What am I supposed to do? What has God called me to? Gang, you have a calling. And I, I don't know what your calling is. I'm not that bright. I know what my calling is, and that's about all I can handle. But we're all called to ministry in Christ. Don't ever underestimate that fact. And if you're not sure what your calling is, then you start talking to God about it. Lord, show me. Explain it to me. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute here. But I also want to say something else about this. Not only should we not underestimate our calling, but we don't want to overestimate our calling either. But you see, God called me to be a teaching pastor at a church on North Whidbey Island. Not to be a Billy Graham. And I could be very frustrated saying, well, okay, if I'm going to be a teaching pastor, I want to teach to thousands. And I would be overestimating my calling, which would lead to discontent. The apostles played that game. The comparison game. They were looking at each other. Luke chapter 22, verse 24 tells us there arose a dispute among them as to which of them was regarded to be the greatest. Now I want to remind you, this was after three years of walking with Jesus. This was toward the end of Jesus' public ministry. These guys had heard the teaching. These guys had seen the master-servant in action. And their spiritual maturity summed up in one sentence, Who's the greatest? Well, I think it's me. Who's going to sit at his right hand? Who's going to sit at his left hand? Who's going to be the big shot? And they were overestimating, every single one of them, their calling. And Jesus said to them, no, fellas. No, that's not in the Bible. I added that. But he said, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it's not to be this way with you. The one who is greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. You want to be great? Serve. You want to figure out your ministry calling? The best place to begin is on your hands and knees cleaning the floor. Service. Not looking for the big, grand, glorious thing that's going to elevate you above all other ministers, but just serving. And in that, God will show you what your true calling is. These apostles get into such a petty, childish dispute the same way that we do. We get petty when we forget our calling. But listen Listen, this, this wording is precious. Mark chapter 3, verse 13. I love this. Jesus goes, and, and this would have helped the apostles, if they could have drawn back three years. The dispute they had over the greatest, greatest person wouldn't have happened. If they could go back to when Jesus called them and remember what happened when he called them, they never would have had the argument over who was greater. What happened? Listen to this. Mark three thirteen. He went up on the mountain and summoned or called and I have this underlined in my Bible, those whom He wanted. He called those He wanted. And Mark goes on to write that they came to Him and He appointed twelve. Why? So that they would be with Him. There were two things in the Apostles' calling that they forgot in this moment of fighting over who was the greatest. They forgot that they were wanted by Christ and they forgot that they were to be with Christ. And if we understood those two things, half of the petty disputes in the church would never happen. It would never happen. Because I'm with Christ. 
I'm wanted by Christ, and once I've been called to that, who cares what my position or title is? Who cares what I look like? Who cares what I'm elevated to? That's up to God. That's His call. But when I know that Jesus wants me with Him, and that Jesus wants me in the first place, that is a considerable calling. You are wanted to be with the Lord. And that alone is enough. But God is crystal clear about His calling throughout Scripture. And we can go on and read verse after verse after verse about what it means to be called and the fact that all Christians, all believers are called by Christ into lives of ministry. Whatever those specific callings are, we are all called. But I do want to point out two things with this, that calling comes with both a promise and a warning. The promise first. Jude, verse 1, refers to those as Christ as those in Christ as the called, the beloved in God the Father, and those who are kept for Jesus Christ. I love that. I am called, I'm beloved, and I'm kept. And Peter says in 1 Peter 5.10, After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you... The work will not be light and easy. He says, after you have suffered for a little while, Aaron, we were just talking about this a few minutes ago. The amount of suffering that happens in this life is so fast, it's so brief, it's so minute, and yet I've been called to something far beyond this. What have I been called to? Something greater than any of the suffering could ever amount to in this life. I have been called to, Peter says, His eternal glory. Not my temporal glory. I've been called to His eternal glory. And Jesus will perfect that in me. That is the end to which Jesus would strengthen and establish me. His eternal glory. And I've got to stop for a moment and say this. I think we in the church need to clarify our understanding of heaven a little bit better. Because we don't understand our eternal glory. And yet we should. There's no reason why people in the church, people of the book, people who are in the Word, would misunderstand the concept of heaven. It's not about halos, and it's not about clouds, and it's not about floating, and it's not some vague thing out there that we're supposed to just hope is good. The Bible is clear about what heaven, what eternity, will look like. Crystal clear. And yet it's in a book that you know people don't want to read because it's confusing. In fact, it's in the last two chapters of the last book in the Bible. And I want to encourage you, at some point in this week, go read those last two chapters so that you know what your eternal glory will look like. We should know this, and yet we shun it. And I think part of the reason why most evangelical Christians are so vague about heaven today is we are so focused on life now. We're so into life now. Some of the best-selling books, and again, well, we were just talking about this about an hour ago. Think about the top sellers of Christian books that are out there right now, The Purpose Driven Life, which is a great book. And yet, what's the focus? Now. Or Joel Osteen's book, Your Best Life Now. An- another good book. But where is the focus? Where is the mind of the church? It's on the now. It's on today. It's on how living for Christ can make my life better. Well, what if living for Christ, what if your calling in Christ makes your life worse? What then? 
And David, you've got that screwed up look on your face like, wait a minute, in my life could get worse? Yes, it could. You want a comparison? Read the life of Paul in the Bible. Check him out. His life went into the toilet when he really followed God and, and heard his calling. Paul was beaten. He was left for dead. He was stoned. He was kicked out of every decent city he went into. He was shipwrecked numerous times. He was flogged. And all this because he accepted his calling in Christ. Well, I look at that and I go, okay, I like the best life now better. <laughs> I'd rather have the good life now. I'd rather have the ten steps to being a happy dude. <laughs> and yet, didn't Paul say, those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Will suffer. So, yeah, I think, all right, all right. So, if I have this calling and I'm called to a life that could be bad, could be difficult, could be hard, could produce suffering and persecution, why would I follow that calling in the first place? Simple. Because Peter says, you have been called to eternal glory in Christ. You haven't been called to your best life now, you have been called to your best life forever. And what happens in the here and now will be gone like that. Sure, and I were talking about she, She's about to turn. I can't fit. She's close to my age, and I just turned 40. So we're looking back over our lives and realizing how fast that's happened. How rapid. And again, just about an hour ago, I'm, I'm just going to repeat our whole conversation here. Is that okay? But about an hour ago, Cheryl just made the comment. She said, you know, you would think as you get older that life would, would be slower. But the reality is the older you get, the faster it, it's gone. The more rapid you realize life goes. The more you look back and go, well, I was, I was just cutting my teeth. You know? I just got out of high school. And I'm turning 40. Or turned 40. Or I'm 60 and I remember being a teenager and I don't know what happened. I woke up one day and looked in the mirror. It's kind of like Tom Hanks and Big. Except the other way around. You know, no, I guess it would be the right way. The kid looks in the mirror and all of a sudden you're just... Where did that come from? Where's that going? You know, I just, My best life. God has called me to is an eternal one and the calling is an eternal one and the promise is that Jesus will perfect, confirm, strengthen and establish me for that eternal dwelling with Him. And now when I understand that I can live now. I don't have to worry about now. The worst possible things that happen. Brian and Kirsten are about to get married and I just want to embarrass you guys for a minute here. They're getting married and they're heading off to school so Brian can, can study and they're looking into missions following that. And they have no idea how they're going to afford it. Isn't that great? That is living in Christ now. Hey, I know what God has called me to. And they are crystal clear about what God has called them to, about the ministry that is ahead of them. They don't know what it's going to look like, how he's going to provide, what he's going to do, but they know that he's called them, and that's enough. And that's enough. So when our eyes and our ears and our minds are on the eternal, and we know where we're going, where we are right now, is okay. It's okay. Well, the calling comes with a promise. The calling also comes with a warning. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, if we've done two verses in half an hour, how in the world are we going to finish this chapter? Trust me. We always do this. Don't you know that? We always start out and take about, you know, 45 minutes on three verses, and then we rush through the rest and get done. 
We're going to, so stay with me. The calling comes with a promise, but the calling also comes with a warning. Look in Matthew chapter 22. Flip over there real quickly. Matthew 22 and verse 1. I guess we're spending so much time on the calling because, again, it is so critically important that we understand that we have a calling at all. And we have a considerable calling, and I believe the Lord wants you to to rest in that tonight and remember that and live with that thought. Well, Matthew chapter 22, verse 1, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Well, this is Jesus' picture of the Jews. And again he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatted livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. The prophets being sent to the Jewish people, but they refused. Verse 5, they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm and another to his business, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged. And he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. And then he said to his slaves, the wedding's ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. Wonderful. Amazing grace. Just go out and get anybody. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. And then the king said to the servants, Find him, hand and foot, and throw him into the outer darkness, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And listen to this, For many are called, Arise, but few are chosen. And that's the warning. Many are called. Few are chosen. At first read you might say, well this king seems a little harsh or unfair. But the mere fact that this man who was kicked out was in the wedding hall in the first place was a pure act of grace. Go call everybody. Come on in. Be a part of the wedding feast. And so this man, by the grace of the king, was there in the first place. And yet, there was a problem. Jesus says, many are called, few are chosen. What does this mean? It means that God has called me to his eternal kingdom, but he expects me to come in the proper attire. He expects me to come dressed for the wedding feast, wearing the right kind of clothes. What kind of clothes are those? What's the proper attire? Well, this is cool. Back to Exodus chapter 31, you will find it in Bezalel's name. The proper attire. That which God would have you wear... So that you can remain in the kingdom. So that you can enjoy the wedding feast. So that you can fully live in your calling. The wedding attire. Exodus 31 2. See, I have called by name Bezalel. What does Bezalel mean? Bezalel. We know that El is the Almighty. So what is Bezel? It literally means in the shadow of. Bezalel. In the shadow of of the Almighty. Many are called, but few are chosen. To be chosen, you cannot approach God wearing your goodness. 
You cannot approach God covered by your works. You can only approach in the shadow of the Almighty, in the covering of grace. That is how you approach God in the kingdom. Bezalel, in the shadow of the Almighty. Isaiah 61.10 says, For He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. And as the call... I am told not to come before the Lord in my sweaty works. We talked about this at the end last week. Remember, God doesn't want sweaty servants. Specifically in Ezekiel, He said, Don't serve in the temple wearing anything but cool linen because I don't like the smell of your sweat. God doesn't look for, doesn't want our work, our sweat. Instead, He is calling us to live as Bezalel in the shadow of the Almighty. Psalm 91, verse 1, we sang the song based on this tonight. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. It means that the Lord is your covering. It means that the Lord is your proper attire. It means that His righteousness, His robe of righteousness, His garments of salvation have been given to you. And these you're covered by His grace. Like little flowers cropping up as seemingly insignificant weeds in the shadow of gigantic trees in the state park. Beauty by the hands of the Creator, but in the shadow of greatness. We live in the shadow of God's authority, the shadow of His righteousness, the shadow of His grace. We have a considerable calling. Well, the second thing, moving on. We have a considerable calling. Bezalel had a considerable calling. But number two, Bezalel received a formidable filling. Verse three. Tells us, I have filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and in all kinds of craftsmanship. God says, I have filled him. Now this is interesting to me. As we sandwich again chapters 30 and 31 together, we see something really cool. The Holy Spirit doesn't just anoint for priestly or prophetic duties or pastoral duties. The Holy Spirit anoints for practical ministry. That Bezalel, Bezalel is anointed by, by the Father to do the work that God has called him to do. The filling of the Holy Spirit. And in Bezalel's case, interesting, the filling of the Holy Spirit was not an ability to prophesy. It wasn't an ability to speak in tongues or to heal or teach or even to distinguish spirits. The Holy Spirit's anointing was wisdom and understanding and knowledge. What for? I have given him these things in all kinds of craftsmanship. He was anointed, gifted by the Holy Spirit, filled by the Spirit of God for what? To be a good craftsman. You might say, well, what if Bezalel was already a craftsman? Or what if he had been trained a carpenter? Well, he probably had been. That probably was Bezalel's trade. He probably had spent years of his life doing this very thing naturally. But now God supernaturally says, I am filling him with wisdom and understanding and knowledge. He is now enabling Bezalel to take natural giftedness to supernatural levels in the building of the tabernacle. And the wording is very important here, and I don't want you to miss this. This is where we talk about how we understand the specific gifts that God has given me. And I think there's a key here, a clue to knowing what God has called me to. Bezalel is filled, filled by the Holy Spirit by, with wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. Those three things. Which means we should expect to receive 
similar things, especially in the area of our lives where we are called by the Holy Spirit to serve. Let me see if I can explain this better. And listen close, you've got to get this. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 2 says the following about the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, him being Jesus, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Three of these things are exactly what we're told the Holy Spirit filled Bezalel with. Wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. Bezalel is this guy who was a craftsman. He already had the natural talent. But now the Holy Spirit comes along, fills him, takes the natural talent, that which, that which he already does pretty good, and makes him supernaturally better. So, so here's an easy way to discover your spiritual giftedness. I mean, I know you can go out and get a spiritual gift inventory. You can probably read a book about how to discover your spiritual gifts. You could probably sit in a counseling session with a pastor or someone to figure out your spiritual gifts. Or you can just pray about it and understand this simple principle. Your spiritual gift is what comes supernaturally natural to you. Does that make sense? Your spiritual gift is what comes supernaturally natural to you. In other words, it's being empowered to do what you often are already doing or are already capable of doing, but you become supernaturally equipped to do that for the sake of the glory of God. It's God taking what He's already shaped you, prepared you to do, and moving you to the next level, placing it in ministry that glorifies Him. We oftentimes in our Christian lives, when it comes to spiritual gifts, we want to find something that is not of us. We want to go, wow, boom, I can do this great thing over here. And we've never had any experience in that before in our lives. I'm going to be in the worship band. Can you sing? Well, no. You play an instrument? No. But But I want to be in the worship band. What has God called you to do? Well, I don't know. What do you do well? What do you enjoy doing? What is something that you move in already? Perhaps God is supernaturally calling you to that very ministry. All Bezalel needed was a little extra. He was already a craftsman, but now he gets knowledge and wisdom and understanding. And in our lives, those places where we are experiencing more wisdom maybe than usual, more knowledge, more understanding, maybe a little more strength, or counsel maybe even I'm more aware of the fear of the Lord when I'm functioning in this place that's when you know this is your gift what do you mean the fear of the Lord I mean when you're doing something and I'll give again a personal example when people come to me at the end of a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night and thank me for the teaching or have something gracious to say about it it unnerves me. I'm just telling you honestly. Feel free to keep it coming, but it, it unnerves me. It scares me a little bit. The fear of the Lord comes in loud and clear. Because I recognize that this is not me. I recognize that anything that you learn when we're in Bible study together is because of what God is doing, because of what the Holy Spirit is teaching you. And so to take any credit for that is a scary place to be. Now, like Les's advice, he says, just duck down and let the glory go on up to Jesus. So I do a lot of ducking. But this is key. That God has gifted each of us. And He has given us 
something supernatural in the natural and he will work that out and show these things to us. 1 Corinthians 12.4 Now there are varieties of gifts but of the same spirit. And there are varieties of ministries in the same Lord and there are varieties of effects but the same God who works all things in all persons. And please understand me when I use myself as an example it's only because it's the easiest example I have. And when I use my family members, I usually get, go home and get shot for it. So, you know, you do doing that. I don't, I don't think of myself as a great teacher. But I think of myself as someone that God has called to teach. And there's a big difference. I really feel that way. And again, when I use myself as an example, it's simply because I have learned this and seen this. And I, I get this. Wisdom and understanding and knowledge. When I study God's word and prepare for like Bible studies like we're doing right now, I see things. I don't know what. Well, I do know why. I understand things I shouldn't understand. In my office, all alone, I'll go, oh, cool. And I'll, no, yeah. And I'll be typing this out. And every now and then the thought strikes me, where in the world did that come from? Because I didn't have the training in this. It's because of the gifting of God. It's because of Him. Marianne has a phenomenal gift. I'm going to embarrass you for a minute. Because she doesn't go home with me, so you know I can't get in trouble. Marianne has an amazing gift. She sees things through the lens of a camera. This is a gift. This is something, Marianne, that you need to understand. God is taking a natural gift He's already given you and is able to supernaturally take that beyond where you're thinking right now. That's what He does. So I encourage you to look in your lives and understand that you have a formidable filling that you have the Holy Spirit in you who will give you and take you to a place that you don't expect but it's not that place over somewhere else that you've never been it is probably right where you are it's probably in doing what you already do really well but you think it's so common and so insignificant how could God possibly use that to glorify himself well he can and he will The Lord will give you wisdom. He'll give you understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, and yes, even fear. Fear of the Lord in your spiritual giftedness. So with this man, Bezalel, we see a practical example of the calling of God and the filling of God's spirit. But God doesn't leave Bezalel alone in the task. He gives Bezalel, number three in our outline, skillful support. Bezalel receives skillful support. Verse 6. And behold, I myself, God speaking, have appointed with him Oholiab, the son of Akisamach, of the tribe of Dan, and in the hearts of all who are skillful, I have put skill, that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat upon it, and all the furniture of the tent, the table also, and its utensils, and all the pure gold lampstand, with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering also, with all its utensils, and the laver, and its stand, and the woven garments as well, and the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons, with which to carry on their priesthood, the anointing oil also, and the fragrant incense for the holy place, they are to make them according to all that I have commanded you. So here we've got this guy, Bezalel, who has been called and filled, and now he's given skilled support. He's given a holy house. He's given along with him craftsmen, carpenters, goldsmiths, silversmiths, bronzesmiths, tailors, weavers, oil makers, fragrance makers, and all these guys are working together under the oversight of Bezalel to achieve something marvelous. 
the building of the tabernacle. And by the way, after Bezalel oversaw the building of the Ark of the Covenant, he would never see it again. Realize that? It would go into the tabernacle. And then as they traveled with it, covered up, his craftsmanship, probably the finest work that he would ever do with his hands, he would not see again. Why? Because the glory was not to be his. It was for the Lord. It was the giftedness of the Lord that caused these things to be done. And so all these men, the Holy Ab and the rest of the gang, were filled with wisdom to construct and to weave and hammer out the tabernacle, God's holy place. And with this, a principle, again, of practical ministry, God rarely sends anybody to do something alone. He tends to call an individual, but then immediately to shore up that individual with all the skilled support that he or she needs. Chuck Smith said, where God guides, God provides. And before this church began, I didn't realize how badly I was going to need people. That if there was any one provision that God could give, Cheryl and I, at the very beginning of the British Christian Fellowship, it would be a team of people to help plant the church. And if you haven't heard this, I'll just share this with you. This is how it happened. It wasn't until we made a decision and accepted the call to start the bridge that things began to, I mean, literally just take off. And they did, and it was unbelievable. In fact, in the space of, from September 2nd to October 4th, literally one month's time, this church went from not even ever being thought of to being a planted vision to the first Bible study, one month. We didn't spend months and months planning the beginning of the British Christian Fellowship. It wasn't even in my head, and, and those of you who know me know that I was pushing it away, saying, no, we're not going to do this. I don't want to plant a church. Anytime anybody brought up the idea, what about planting a church in Oak Harbor? What if you planted a church in Mount Vernon? What if you planted a church in Timbuktu? I'd say, no thanks. I don't want to do that. That's not what God has called me to, until God called me to, which was a complete shock to me. And so we had to make a decision without any knowledge of help. But the moment we did, the help came streaming in. I will never forget, I'm going to embarrass someone else here, but I'll never forget the email I got from Tom Shorthouse. Immediately after I shared with our, with our church at the time that we were going to plant this church. All we did to gather this planting team was ask God to bring the people He wanted to bring. We didn't make phone calls. We didn't recruit anybody. We didn't hold a big church meeting and say, everyone who wants to come, here we go. We said, Lord, bring those you want. And the calls started coming. And the emails started coming. And it was a small group of about 20 people. And the way we knew that these people had been called was every person to a person said, I think the Lord wants us to be involved and to help us. That's what we're hearing. Amazing. By the way, this is why the love of people in a fellowship is so critical. Because people are the greatest resource that God builds into the church. And He wants His people loving each other devoted to each other. In fact, Paul says it this way, Romans 12:10. Be devoted to one another out of brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, but fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. And in these three short verses, Paul sums up 
what the body of Christ should be like and how the body of Christ supports and encourages and works with each other like Bezalel and his fellow craftsmen. Working as a team, functioning together, fervent in love, caring for each other. But listen, the Bible also says that iron sharpens iron. And so one man sharpens another. And there are many times in churches where the sparks fly among the practical craftsmen. Do you think it happened with Bezalel in the game? That he said, this is how we're going to do this. God designed it this way, but, but we have some leeway here, so we're going to try this. And, and another craftsman said, well, you know, actually I've been doing this a little bit longer than you, Bezalel. <laughs> I've got a better idea than what you have on how we can do this. And the Holy App comes in and says, no, I, I don't think that's a good idea. I think this is the way we should do it. We don't have any record of, of how they function together. But it is interesting that Oholiab, Oholiab is a great example of how we function together, of how we are called to function together. What do you mean? I said a few moments ago that we are not to overestimate our calling. Here's another way to put it. To succeed at your calling, don't exceed your calling. To succeed at your calling, don't exceed your calling. Jim has a calling in, in the bridge this summer, a specific calling. Did you know that? <laughs> he knows better than I do. Part of that calling is to work with our teenagers this summer. But you know what Jim's calling is? It's not to teach. It's not to plan activities. It's not to be the go-to guy for games and fun and, and organization. It's not to administrate. It's not to tell Scott what to do. Jim's calling is to pray. That's it. And so teenagers, what you guys can know is that when anything is going on, Jim's there. Guess what he's doing? He's praying for you. That's his calling. And that's it. And Scott's told me a couple of times that he won't do anything else. <laughs> because that's his calling. And he will not exceed it. And because Jim won't exceed it, he will succeed in it. And Scott will succeed in his ministry because he has an Oholiab right beside him. Who knows his calling and is functioning in it. By the way, I love Oholiab's name. It means literally his father's tent. So just like Bezalel who dwells in the shadow of the Almighty, so Oholiab dwells in his father's tent, his father's covering. Both of these men together covered by the Lord. But apparently Oholiab is content in the tent. He's fine with that. He's not the big man. He's not the main chief. He's not the first guy God called to work on the tabernacle. He's the assistant. He's the helper. He's the vice president. He's not the main one in charge, but he has been called, filled, anointed, and appointed for this purpose to work alongside Bezalel. And he's cool with that. What a great picture of how to function in the church. What is my calling? Man, when I understand what that calling is and begin to function in it alongside other believers, I am content with that. A holy has been given the much needed but often rejected position of second chair, first violin. Mm-hmm. A famous conductor was once asked the question, what is the hardest position to fill in a symphony orchestra? And his response to this was, first chair, second violin. Because there are all kinds of people who want to play first violin, but to find someone who's willing to play second violin and be the best at it, that's a hard position to fill. And that's a holy ad. Coming alongside, which is also exactly the role of the Holy Spirit. John 15 and 16 both talk. Many times Jesus mentions the Holy Spirit, calls him the helper. 
Some translations say the counselor. The actual word is parakletos. Parakletos. You Bible students know what that means. To come alongside of. And so those of us who come alongside of another person in a ministry, who help support that person, who are just there doing their role, again, as Tim in prayer, coming alongside of Scott, giving the spiritual support that he needs to do what he's doing, are functioning just like the Holy Spirit, who comes alongside us, Paracletos. Interesting. Bezalel, Holiad, a whole gang of guys functioning together, working together, a skillful support system. Well, we've talked about three of the four keys. A considerable calling, a formidable filling, and a skillful support system. We're going to finish on the fourth one here. The substance, and this is possibly the most critical, the substance of the Sabbath. What? Listen to this. God explains to Moses, last thing he says to him on the mountaintop, he tells him about the skilled craftsmen, Bezalel, Aholiab, the other guys, and then in verse 12 he goes on and says the following. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbath. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Therefore you are to observe the Sabbath for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. <laughs> death penalty. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. It just keeps coming up. Sabbath, Sabbath, Sabbath. God brings it up over and over and over in Scripture, and it seems like we can't get away with it. And I wonder, do you think maybe God is on to us? Do you think maybe He realizes that we have trouble resting in Him? That we would just as soon be busy at the work, getting it done, making it happen, stirring it up, working hard, sweating big time, and God keeps coming back to the Sabbath. Why? Because of this human tendency, and it's interesting, it falls right here in this chapter. The reality is construction becomes distraction. And when I'm busy building, busy doing, and making things happen, often those are the times when I become distracted from my rest in the Lord. And you might jot this down, the priority of practical ministry. The priority of practical ministry above all other things is resting in the Lord. That's what practical ministry is striving for, is headed toward Resting in the Lord. Verse 15, he goes on and says, For six days work may be done. But on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest. I like the way he says that. A Sabbath of complete rest. Holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall surely be put to death. If you're not going to rest, I'm going to make sure you rest, the Lord says. So the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. He says it is a sign, listen to this closely, between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he ceased from labor and was refreshed. What is God saying here? Two things to note and we're done. Number one, the Sabbath was a sign for Israel. The Sabbath was a sign for Israel, not the church. A sign for Israel, but not a sign for the church. Two signs were specifically given to Israel, circumcision and the Sabbath day. But understand this clearly. Demanding a keeping of a Sabbath day as a law is not for the church. And a Seventh-day Adventist friend of yours may argue the point and say, no, we have to keep the Sabbath day too. 
We have to do this. This is law for us. No, it's very clear. God says it is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever, not the church. In fact, going on from there, it's interesting the early church struggled with this in the book of Acts. They struggled with this whole issue of of Jewishness versus Gentileness versus churchness. And the reality, even in the world today, is there are three kinds of people. There are Jews, there are Gentiles, and there's the church. That's it. That covers the whole of humanity. Jews, Gentiles, and the church. And so the first century church had to figure out, how do we be the church? How do we no longer be Jews or leave behind maybe some of that Jewishness? How do we accept the Gentiles in? What do we expect them to do? Well, a lot of us have been circumcised and keeping the Sabbath our whole lives. Now here comes this Gentile just showing up at Bible study. What do we do with him? In Acts chapter 15, it's interesting. They had a council about it. They had to sit down and meet and talk about it and work it out. And Peter said at the council of Jerusalem in Acts 15 verse 9, he says, God made no distinction between us and them, Jews and Gentiles. He says, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke which, I love this, neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Why are we expecting them to do something we can't even do ourselves? But Peter says, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. And Paul puts the best point on this list in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The substance of the Sabbath is Jesus Christ. He is what the Sabbath is about. He is the Sabbath rest that even to this day eludes Israel. But that the church has entered into a rest of Jesus. A complete rest. The Jewish people have yet to enter it. To this day, they keep the day. They rest. They keep the format. They light the candles, say the prayers, have the time. And I'm talking about the Orthodox Jews. And yet, the rest is elusive because it's the shadow and not the substance. For the substance is Jesus. And gang, ultimately Israel will enter that rest. It was for that rest they were called in the first place. And speaking of Israel, Paul wrote in Romans 11.29, The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And he will have a place for Israel. But the Bible indicates something interesting. Not only is the Sabbath day a sign for Israel, but the Sabbath day is a sign for Israel forever. Well, what does that mean? Perpetually, forever, this is between me and them. The Bible indicates, gang, that Israel will forever keep the Sabbath. Even after recognizing who the Sabbath is all about. Even after understanding that Jesus is the substance of the Sabbath. Even after that point in time that is prophesied in Scripture when Israel will come to a faith in Jesus. Even after that, they will continue to keep the Sabbath. Why is that? Isaiah chapter 66 verse 22. The Lord is speaking and says, For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I make will endure before me, so your offspring and your name will endure, Israel. And so it shall be from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. And I I have to ask, why? Why keep the Sabbath after the substance of the Sabbath is realized? 
Because the Sabbath is a sign for Israel forever. Right now it's a sign, it's a shadow of the substance to come. Once the substance is realized, the law will become the love. The keeping of the day will become a memorial celebration of the rest of God who is Jesus Christ our Lord. It will be kept as as a wonderful reminder, a constant thought that Jesus is our Sabbath. They're going to want to continue the Sabbath week after week and on into eternity because Jesus is the Sabbath. Verse 18 at the end of the chapter, when he had finished speaking with him upon Mount Sinai, and by the way, <laughs> let me just insert this. I think it's, is it next week or the week after? I think it's the week after. Can I say that? The 6th of July? Okay. Week after next, I believe. We're going to show a video. And I want to encourage you to be here because it kind of blew the lid off some teaching I did earlier, which is completely wrong. And, and we will see biblically where, I believe, where Mount Sinai truly is located. It's not on the Sinai Peninsula, as I always used to think. It's not there. It couldn't be there. It makes no sense. Biblically, there are verses that I, I didn't even know were there that point us exactly to the location of Mount Sinai. We're going to watch a video that talks about that and shows the location and explains things. And we will see the whole entire travel of Israel, how they got from Egypt ultimately to the Promised Land. And it's pretty stunning. As a matter of fact, we're even going to go underwater on this video in the Red Sea and see some things that will knock your socks off. So just a little little uh, commercial for that. But when he had finished speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, God gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony. Tablets of stone written by the finger of God. Moses receives the Ten Commandments, which by the way we just finished studying on Sundays. The timing is pretty cool here. He receives the stone tablets. Written by God's finger. Exodus 32 indicates, by the way, that God even formed the tablets themselves. They were not made at all by human hands, the original tablets. Second ones, another story. But Moses takes these tablets, written by God's own finger. And I want you to know, before we finish, that as we've been up on the mountain for the past several weeks, looking at all these things and listening to God and spending this time with God and Moses, the plot has been thickening. The people in the camp have been corrupting themselves. And they've got some serious sacred cows to deal with, and we'll talk about those next week. Father in heaven, thank you so much for bringing us through the study and showing us these things. And it's my heart and my desire, Lord, that you will reveal to us our practical ministry. That you will show us, Father, our significance, our vast significance. That you would not let us walk out of here thinking, no, I'm the one who doesn't matter. I'm the one who, who, who just will sit there and kind of always be there, but I don't have anything really to give. Father, that is such a lie, and it's a lie from the pit. Because you have designed us and formed us and created us for different ministries, for spiritual gifts that the Bible tells us you long to give us. And so my prayer, Father, is that you will open our hearts and our eyes to these things. Help us to see the very natural things you've created us to do. And to ask you and to seek, Father, to know if by chance that natural gift might have supernatural motivation. And if so, Lord, I pray that you'll pour out your spirit of understanding and wisdom and knowledge and strength and counsel and the fear of the Lord. Thank you for these things, Father. Bless the hearers of your message tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.